our study in Philippians. We're back into the, the, the context or the passage that we started in last week. It's really picking up right in the middle of a, a thought that is developing with Paul as he's writing this letter to this church in Philippi. Um, he, he, he had been dealing with, he, he, had, he had greeted them, he had shared with them how much they mean to him, his affection for them, his assurance that God is going to continue to work in them and through them. And, and, and as he then, he transitions then to some of the reason he's writing, he begins to let them know about his personal circumstance, his personal issues that he's facing. Not because he's narcissistic. He's not one of these people that are saying, hey, how you doing? Just so you have an opportunity to, to tell them how you're doing, right? Like that's not what he's doing. He is ultimately striving, he, he's writing to strive to encourage them, to give them some understanding that though he's facing hardship, which they have heard about and will hear more about, that he is okay, that he is still rejoicing, that, that even though that he's been placed in chains, the message that he's proclaiming hasn't been chained, it is still advancing. And even though he is facing conflict, that there are people out there, that there are Christians out there proclaiming Christ for selfish and with selfish ambition, in envy, in strife, seeking to afflict Paul in his own struggle, he is still rejoicing that Christ is being proclaimed. And then as he finishes kind of thinking about what his present circumstance is, he begins to think forward about what's coming, about what the future holds. And so that's really where we pick up today. So we're going to begin reading Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. And the word says this, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Just just to point out here, there's that present tense, I rejoice. And now you're going to see he begins to think future. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's pray. Father... This is your word. We look to it. We, we, we seek you in it. We want to hear from you today. And so I would ask that that's what would occur, that by your spirit, you'd move among us. You'd challenge us, that you would uh, conform us to your word, that we would not uh, in some way stand over it thinking that we have authority over it, but that we, we would submit ourselves to it, that we would be confronted in sin encouraged in the right path, that we would be exhorted to worship. Father, I just pray that you would do your work today in this time. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I mentioned in last week's 
focus in last week's verses, Paul is thinking about his current issues, thinking about the present crisis that he's in. He's arrested. He's in, under house arrest. And the, and the present conflict that he's facing. And, and here, these verses change tone or, or change perspective. They change view. He begins to think forward about what's to happen to me, right? What's, what's going to occur as a result of where I'm at today? And I think every one of us can, can identify with this to a degree because we recognize, oh, I'm struggling today, but what's tomorrow hold? Is it going to be better or worse? What, what's going to happen as I face these things? Well, well, Paul's pretty clear on, on where he stands and what he believes he will be doing even as the future unfolds in front of him and is still in many ways uncertain. He says, I'm rejoicing now and I will rejoice then. He says, you see it in verse 18. In this I rejoice that Christ is proclaimed. Yes, and I will rejoice. I will continue rejoicing. I will keep rejoicing. I'm not going to stop rejoicing. He is hopeful and eagerly expecting. In fact, if you look at that verse, he says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. My salvation is what he's talking about. Probably not a physical deliverance for, from being imprisoned. He's thinking more of, in terms of his deliverance from this life and eternal salvation. But he goes on, it's my eager expectation and hope. He's not going to lose hope. He's not going to quit hoping and quit expecting and anticipating that all that he's counting on will come to pass, that he will not be disappointed. I will not be at all ashamed. The idea there is that he, he's believed these things, he's pursued these things, and at, at, at great cost he has preached Christ, and, and, it, and it is going to come to be, it is going to come to pass, everybody's going to see that he was telling the truth, he is going to be shown to be right, he will not be ashamed in how he spent his life. And he is going to continue with full courage, he is going to be as bold as he's ever been. Because he knows that no matter what happens to him in this body, no matter what circumstance he faces in this life, he is confident that Christ will be honored whether he lives or whether he dies. That's big. I remember reading this in, in uh, uh, the, the furthest village that we work in in Senegal. We call it Kappa. Um, when Bob and I were there in December reading this passage and, and they were struck by just how confident that Paul was in Christ and how committed he was to, to this purpose and, and mission of Christ. How, how is it possible that he could be so certain that no matter what can, no matter what he faced, that he could continue to be rejoicing, that he can continue to be full of hope and eagerly expecting God's, God's work to occur, that he wouldn't be disappointed in any way. How could he be so confident, so certain, that he knows beyond any doubt that he is not going to shrink back in any way? Well, he gives us the reason right there in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus and his mission were everything to Paul. 
His whole life was bound up in Jesus Christ and the work that Jesus had given him to do. Everything that mattered to Paul was bound up in who Jesus Christ was and what Jesus Christ had given Paul to do. All that Paul valued in life was bound up in who Jesus Christ was and what Jesus Christ had given him to do. We're actually going to see those things work themselves out the rest of this letter as he, as he denounces, or it doesn't totally denounce, he affirms his identity in his resume, Hebrew of Hebrews, born of the tribe of Benjamin, and all these things. He's going to count them as nothing in contrast to having Christ. Jesus Christ is everything to Paul. So, so, so because of that, Paul knows no matter what comes next for him, he is going to rejoice. He is going to have hope. He is going to continue courageously because Jesus Christ will not leave him. Jesus Christ will not forsake him. Jesus Christ will come through and all that Paul has done will prove itself out to be true. He knows this for himself and he's writing to a church that he knows well, cares deeply about, they care deeply about him. And he wants them to know these exact same things. He wants them to to see the the same realities. He wants them to experience this same freedom, this same confidence, this same courage. Even today, even today as we sit and read these verses, they can inspire us to this same reality, to this same attitude as we face whatever comes. When Jesus becomes everything to us, When Jesus becomes everything to us, we can face the crises and conflicts of life and death, rejoicing with hope and full of courage to the glory of Christ. When Jesus becomes everything to us, we can face the crises. And by the way, I looked it up. I had to look it up. I was like, what's the plural of crisis? Crises. We can face the crises and conflicts of life and death, rejoicing with hope and full of courage to the glory of Christ. Does that ring true? Do do we? I I think, unfortunately, I think, unfortunately, many of us, maybe most, at least I think many, don't. Many of us don't recognize Jesus as everything to us. I I, I think, I'm, I'm willing to admit I'm wrong. I could be wrong here. And I'm willing to admit I'm wrong. It's taken a lot for me to say that. Let me say it one more time. I'm willing to admit I'm wrong. But, but I think many, if not most, I think many of us, when faced with circumstances that are out of our control, that make it seem if our, as, as if our future is uncertain, rather than rejoice, we, we worry and we grow anxious. Does that ring true for you? Maybe, maybe, maybe many, if not, when, when circumstances are uncertain, out of our control, the future is, is oh man, what's going to happen? Rather than eager anticipation and, and, and hope, I think many, many of us begin to wonder if, if God's forgotten us, and begin to ask Him why, and what did I do to make you so mad, and ha- have you left me? Or, or, or worse, that doubt His work, His sovereign work in our lives, and and His sovereign will over our lives. I, I, I think, and, and again, I, I'm willing to admit it if I'm wrong, that many of us, r- rather than being full of courage, when faced with circumstances we can't control, when faced with 
future uncertainties, we get discouraged and we start looking for the easy way out of the difficulty. I mean, let's, just, let's think about the ways we pray. When hardship comes, what's, what's the primary, when, when, when life crumbles and falls apart, what's the primary prayer request? What are you asking people to pray for and what are you wanting them to pray? Get me out of here. Make this stop. End it. I, I, I'm certainly not trying to be uh, rude or difficult or, or harsh towards anyone here. I, I, I'm standing here admit, recognizing this is true in me myself as well. But instead of saying, no matter what happens, I know Christ will be glorified in my life or my death. I'm more concerned with God giving me an answer to why something's happening to me. Proving to me that he's actually at work and not just abandoned me. When this happens, when we face this, the problem, when the crisis comes, when the conflict we're in becomes overwhelming... The, the, the problem isn't the crisis or the conflict. Don't, don't misunderstand. These are problems, right? Crisis and conflict. Paul's not affirming, oh, let's just ignore this stuff. Let's just not play. Let's not. That stuff is, it's, it's all fake. It's all facade. No, these are hard things. They really are a problem. They are difficult. Now, I'm not denying that, nor was Paul, but the thing that keeps us from rejoicing, the thing that robs our hope, the thing that that discourages us rather than being able to, to live with full courage, to live as boldly for Christ as we ever would, is not the crisis or the circumstance, the conflict itself. It is that we have valued something over Christ and the Lord's will for our life. It could be any number of things. It could be uh, noble things. It could be the plans and dreams you have for your life. It's good to make plans. It's good to have dreams. It's good to think forward and, and not just haphazardly live life by the, flying by the seat of your pants, responding and reacting to everything. Proverbs teaches us that it's wise to plan. But what happens when the life doesn't go to plan? Do, do, we, do, do we just devolve into despair? It could be the pursuit of comfort and security. These aren't bad things to, for, for, for young men. This is one that I've struggled with throughout my life, the, to be able to provide for my family, to ensure that they're taken care of, to, to have financial, some sense of financial security, to, to, to have some sense of comfort so it's not always a, a grind and always a struggle. They aren't bad in and of themselves, are they? No. But what happens when we lose the job? Who's providing for us when we have the job? Who's providing for us when we don't have the job? Who's providing for us when life is difficult? Who's protecting us and and, and keeping us when life is difficult? Where is our comfort when life is easy? Versus where is our comfort when life is hard? It it could be relationships that we've valued so highly. We've taken good things and, and, and made them gods to us. In our consumer-driven culture, I think one of the things that I, I see play itself out in my life and the lives of many others that I've walked through, through through these kinds of circumstances is that we prioritize and devote ourselves to the gifts God gives us to enjoy 
while we're just trying to enjoy Jesus every so often while we're prioritizing, while we should be prioritizing him as the one thing that's a priority above all others. We prioritize these gifts when we should just be enjoying them, and we just enjoy a little bit of Jesus when we should be prioritizing him. The reality is there's no end. There's no end to what we can displace the Lord with. If you look across the scripture, this has been happening all the way back, all the way to the garden. It's happened repeatedly. We see it happen over and over. In the garden, it was a piece of fruit and a desire to have something that the serpent convinced them that they were missing out on. Did God really say? If you eat this fruit, you'll be like him. Discounting the fact that God had created them in his image, that God had created them like him, as like him as we were ever intended to be. At the foot of Mount Sinai, just days after being delivered by God, the Israelites grew impatient of waiting, Moses, waiting for Moses to come down from the mountain. And so what do they do? Oh, we, let's, let's have something to worship. Come on, let's, we got to have, we got to do that. We got, we got, we got to worship. So let's, let's do something. Let's build something. And boy, they did. At the temptation of Jesus. Now, just so you know where it said it, Jesus didn't give in. But the tricks were there. The same stuff was there. The same, the same, uh, the same alternatives were being offered. D- d- different ways to achieve or let me say this differently. The presentation of different ways to achieve God's will and God's plan in Jesus' life. They weren't real. They weren't true. They wouldn't have, they wouldn't have resulted in the work that God intended to do. They would have, we would have seen Jesus fall. And The reality is, is that the enemy has been at work seeking to trip us up and trick us in this since the fall into sin. And then after the fall into sin, our flesh has desired this stuff over the one who's always supposed to have been the priority. In fact, we have ways of dressing it up and religiousizing it so that it looks very noble. So we idolize children and we make them everything and our whole life is wrapped around them to the point that our children make all our decisions for us rather than our children being raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Our jobs, we commit to a, to, to a boss more than we commit to Christ. I, I'm not suggesting that these don't have some, some, play, some room and they don't demand some attention. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm going for here. But we elevate these good things to God things and we displace the Lord so that when life crumbles and we've lost our job, how in the world am I going to survive? How am I going to provide for my family as if you were the one doing it to begin with? When our children disobey and rebel as they will, I'm not giving you permission to disobey your parents. Don't hear me saying that. Not giving you permission to rebel against your parents. Don't hear me saying that. Obey your parents. Honor your father and mother. That's the Bible verses written directly to you kids. But they will. What, what are you, you going to do? 
When the people that you've pinned your whole life on fail you, when the people that are supposed to be standing alongside you rebel or, or I'm not, 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 they, they reject you or they betray you. Paul says, hey, I'm rejoicing because Christ is being proclaimed. I'm filled with hope, eager expectation. I'm looking forward to his work ahead of me. And I am filled with courage. I'm not backing down in any way. How could he do that? How can we do that? When Christ becomes everything to us, when we can say with Paul, to live is Christ, to die is gain, we are going to find that we will easily, naturally begin to say, I will rejoice. I will have hope. I will be full of courage. Well, what does it mean to live is Christ, to die is gain? Well, first, the translators, they give us the verbs in, in this sentence, the, the, the verb is, the, the, that, that idea of being. It, it, it doesn't exist. His, his, his actual phrase is much more stark. It's, it stands out much more boldly. To live, Christ. To die, gain. But again, we hear that. We, we, we hear those words as, man, that's maybe a little further than I'm willing to go. Maybe it's a little, you know, that's, that's for those holy rollers who carry their Bible everywhere and speak in King James English. You know, like that, that's for them. That, God in His grace is, He's allowing, He's okay with me not being there. And by His grace, you are safe in Him. But you are missing out on the fullness of his joy, on the fullness of his hope, and on the fullness of the courage of what it looks like to live for him in all you do. We all are. Whether we realize it or not, Jesus Christ is everything to the Christian. He is absolutely central to everything about who we are, about what we do, and about how we've come to be who we are. In his book, Basic Christianity, John Stott writes this. He says, the person and work of Christ are the foundation rock upon which Christian religion is built. Take Christ from Christianity and you disembowel it. There is practically nothing left. Christ is the center of Christianity. All else is circumference. If you remove him from it, if you put something else in the center of it, if you give yourself to religion apart from Christ, if you give yourself to, to some idea of mission and, and, and purpose apart from Christ, you are going to miss it. We know this. We, we know it's true. You can sit here right now, and I, I'm certain everybody in this room, or at least the vast majority of the people in this room, are agreeing with me. I, I, I don't doubt that. But then we functionally turn around and do something else. So we, we, we need to think about this. Well, what does it mean to live is Christ? To, to live Christ. What, what does that mean? To live is Christ. This is how I would express it. This is in my study. I think this is probably uh, the most succinct synopsis of it. There is no life apart from Christ. Before you knew Christ, you were walking around breathing, eating, drinking, uh, going to parties and showing up at work and doing all the things that living people do. But in terms of spiritual life, in terms of true life, you were nothing more than a walking dead. Nothing more than a zombie that's walking around consuming. 
To live is Christ. There, it, it means that there is no life apart from Christ. This was John's, John the Baptist's attitude. When, when he saw Jesus' ministry growing and his ministry beginning to, to shrink, he didn't, he didn't run out and try to figure out ways to, to make sure that he stayed in the center of everybody's attention, and in, in the center of everybody, everybody's focus. He, he says in John 3.30, He must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist knew that Jesus must increase. He must be the center. He must be the purpose. He must be the per- person people follow. I must decrease. Every one of his disciples needed to have a smaller view of John the Baptist and a bigger view of Jesus. And he knew that. He understood it. Paul, this isn't the only time Paul voiced this attitude in his letter to the Galatians, in which he's dealing more directly with people who are out teaching false doctrine. He writes to the Galatians in chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. His life is bound up completely with Christ. There is no life truly apart from Christ. Another place that we could see this, Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive in Christ, right? There's this understanding. Jesus is. He's the source and the foundation of life. It starts with him. It's built upon him. It doesn't exist away from him. He is the power for life. He enables us to to do the things that we've been given to do. In fact, you go back to this passage and it's so powerful when you look at what Paul says. I know that through your prayers, he's talking about the, the, the people he just prayed for, he knows, are praying for him. That's this fellowship of the gospel, this partnership in the, in the gospel. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, and so he knows, he knows that through the prayers of these people, Jesus Christ is going to be working in him to give him the power to live. He is confident in that. Jesus gives meaning to life. It, Paul isn't, he, he's not discouraged because, oh, I'm in prison and, oh, man, there's all this conflict. He's not apathetic. He's not lost, he's not lost hope. He is eagerly expecting Christ to continue to work. All meaning is bound up in Christ. And more than that, when he comes down and he says, to live as Christ, to die as gain, if I live in the flesh... That means if I remain in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. If I die or if I live, Christ will be glorified in my body. If I live in the flesh, there's fruitful labor. It's meaningful. It's, in, it's, it's purposeful. It's, it's eternally lasting fruit. How many of us are giving ourselves to the pursuit of things that burn up in the end? This thing, if you are striving to build your own kingdom here on earth, how much of that will last in eternity? If, 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 if your purpose for living is simply raising a family and achieving the American dream, how much of that lasts into eternity? None of it. I don't even know if I should use this illustration, but I'm going to because it's in my head and that's just what I do. So if it's here, I'll say it, right? So I've been talking uh, a bit with some folks that are thinking about, let's start a Christian school, an overtly Christian school 
Could it possibly be tied to the church? And oh man, this is early, early stuff. So don't, it's not like, don't, don't hear me saying we're starting school. That's not what this is about. But in the process of this, this, this thing, I've been praying about things like this for a long time. Not because I think we needed to, to build a school or to start a school per se. But because in our culture, as parents, we have given ourselves to educating and preparing our kids to live here and not preparing them to live there. Like we want them to get a good education and go out in the world and make a good living and support themselves and be productive members of society. That is the goal of virtually every parent I talk to. But how many of us, it is our goal to ensure that our kids are prepared to live in eternity. And that while they're here, they're prepared and being prepared to live in eternity. And while they're here, they are able to say with Paul, I rejoice. I am filled with hope and courage. Because I know the bulk of my life won't be lived here, but there. See, we... We, we, we hand all that. We, we, we pass this stuff off. We give it all away. And we say, oh, make our kids ready to live in this world. How different would it look if instead of stopping short with preparing our lives, kids to live in this world, that we sought to raise ministers and missionaries? Not in the official sense, not in the vocational sense that got to get up and move away, but in everyday life, they, our kids grew up to live as ministers and missionaries. How different would the way you parent look? If you began to live with that eternal perspective as opposed to this temporary, everything's going to burn up in the end except for that thing that's been made fruitful by Christ. That's meaningful. That's the meaningful stuff that Paul's talking about. He's talking about doing something that makes an eternal difference in people's lives, and that fruit is borne out in their life. That's why he's so confident that as a result of him and his work, The Philippians will continue to glory in Christ Jesus and will have even more reason to glory in Christ Jesus because he knows that fruitful ministry gives way and is meaningful. So Jesus is the source and foundation of life. He's the power of life. He gives meaning to life. Jesus is the very point of living to Paul. That's what this is, to live as Christ. He is the very point of living. It's not just having Christ out there and getting to enjoy all this stuff is the point of living. Getting Christ is the very point of living. And he's able to enjoy all this other stuff because he has Christ. That's central. And and, and that is so real and so true to him that the following part of the statement, it's not just hyperbole, it's not just an exaggeration, he's able to say it with all sincerity, to die is gain. To live Christ, to die, gain. Because death provides greater access to Christ. This seems seems crazy, right? And we we always want to be careful because we don't want to point people at death. We don't, oh man, don't. This may make people suicidal and people start killing themselves so they be with Jesus. That's not at all what Paul's after. Paul is not in any way diminishing the beauty and and the gift that we've been given in this life. He's over and over. He says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. He's not diminishing or discouraging us to, to live in joy in this life and enjoy all that God has given us in the right framework and the right level of priority. But he cannot deny that because having Jesus is the point of life, he can't deny that being with Jesus is better than not being with him. 
J.M. Boyce, in his commentary, is helpful, gives, gives a helpful perspective. He, he, he says, death for the Christian is never pictured in the Bible as a gain over the worst in this life. So it's not an escape. It's not a way for us to get out and, and to finally end our suffering and hardship. That is not how, how Paul is presenting this here. Instead, it is portrayed as an improvement on the best. So to be able to say this with all sincerity, to, to die is gain, you must also recognize that to live is Christ. To have one without the other, is, is, it, it, it's disconnected, it's inconsistent. But when you can say that to live is Christ, then you can know that to die is gain. And, and if you know that to die is gain, you must understand that to live is Christ. So in Christ, death is preferable to physical life because in it, in it, our hope and our faith are fulfilled. Hope and faith are the, they're the object, they're, they're placed in an object that we don't actually have hold of. So in death, our faith becomes sight. We can see the one we believed in. We find out that we're not going to be disappointed, that we're not, to, that our hope hasn't left us ashamed. In, it's preferable to physical life because those things that we've placed our faith in and those things that we've been hoping for, we have in front of us. Alec Montier, in his comments, writes this, Death for the Christian is the end of what was at best a transitory thing, a camp life in which he traveled without permanent resting place. This is to be exchanged for the house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Camp life is exchanged at death for home life with Christ. Hey, it's fun to go camping, right? It's fun to go live in a tent for a little bit. For, for those of us that are going to Africa here coming in March, you're going to find out, oh, it's fun for a little bit. Not trying to scare anybody, but it's a, little, it's a little bit further than camping. But it's really good to come home, right? That, that, that's the point. Because that's home. And that's, that's where faith and hope become realities. And no longer do we have to express faith. No longer do we have to express hope because it's right now a present reality. In Christ, death is greater. It, 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 it's, it's preferable to physical life because in Christ, death is greater access to life. Because in death, we actually get Jesus face to face in our presence. We in his. Steve Lawson writes this. Paul realizes that death will usher him to a much greater gain. The grave, I love this, I love this phrase, the grave will graduate him to glory. Death will deliver him into the immediate presence of Jesus Christ. And because Paul is so convinced that this is true, as he faces this current crisis and this current conflict and doesn't know exactly what's going to happen as he continues through this process, he knows, he's confident. <laughs> I'm going to keep rejoicing. I'm going to be filled with eager expectation and hope. I am going to keep hoping. I am going to be filled with courage. I'm not going to back down in any way. So I'm going to live courageously. Because I know that Christ is going to do what Christ has promised he is going to do. Because I know that I won't be ashamed. Because I know that in the end, I will be saved. When Jesus becomes everything to us, we can live and die in joy. We can finally rejoice over something that will never 
be disappointing to us or that will never uh, uh, elude us. When Jesus becomes everything to us, we can live and die in joy. Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, so we rejoice. How many of us have been angry over this last season as we've, as we've seen these, these arguing factions of, of even conservative doctrine? These, these, these men and, and women leaders around the church that have large platforms that, that socially are interacting different ways. But doctrinally, they're still aligned, but they're arguing with one another. How many of us have been frustrated by that? And we quit rejoicing because we're more committed to the leader than the one they're proclaiming. And you may be thinking, I don't know what you're talking about, but some of you know what I'm talking about. Whether he lives or dies, Paul knows Christ is honored in my body, whether by life or by death. How many of us can say that in everything we do, Christ will be glorified in our bodies, in life and in death. How many of us have to walk around with that level of confidence? How many of us are encouraged? This is a challenging thing to me. There's actually so much more that can be said about this. How many of us are so confident that the other people that we walk in the faith with, other members of this body of Christ... How many of us are certain that their prayers are going to be answered on our behalf? When's the last time you thought, I can rejoice because I know they're praying for me? Is it possible that the reason we don't move to that immediately is because maybe we're not praying for anyone else? I, I, I'm not trying to, I'm just saying, is it possible? Because we're so consumed with praying for ourselves, we're not trusting ourselves to Christ, and so why would we be trusting anyone else to Him? So why are we going to pray for them? But it's, it's this phraseology in, the, in that verse is so closely woven together, so so intrinsically tied together with the next part of the phrase that he says, he says, "It's my." I'm sorry. Uh, through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. These are, these are conditional upon, they're, they're woven together. They, they are tied together through your prayers and the resulting work of Christ. What if, I don't know the Lord's will and I can't discern all he thinks and all he does, but what if many of the struggles we face as believers today are because we're not praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're so consumed with our own life, we can't think about anybody else's. And so we're not seeing the work of the Spirit of Christ in us as we face these different struggles. I'm not saying the crisis would be different or the conflict would be different. I'm saying our attitude might be different because the Spirit of Christ is at work in us because of the prayers of our brothers and sisters in Christ. When Jesus becomes everything to us, when life is Christ, and when death is gain, we can live and die in joy. This is the natural result. This is the natural outworking of Christ and His Spirit in us. One of the commentators that I've read from, he struck this idea in me that has, I've been thinking on it walking around, I wanted to share it with you. He, he writes, his name is H.C.G. Uh, uh, 
I don't even know if I'm saying this right, mule, mole, I don't know, you figure it out. He writes, life and death look to us like two evils of which we know not which is the less. We look at life and we think, oh gosh, it's so hard. And then we go around wallowing around in that. And we look at death and we try to avoid it, right? I think this reads true. As for the apostle, they look to him like two immense blessings of which he knows not which is the better. On either side of the veil, Jesus Christ is all things to him. Only the conditions of the other side are such that the longed-for companionship of his master will be more perfectly realized there. He is so committed to Christ. His life is so bound up in Christ. His, Jesus has become everything to him. And because he had, Paul says, I can rejoice. And I think he wants us to rejoice in this as well. When Jesus brings everything to us, we can live and die in hope. We can have the same eager expectation instead of avoiding death, and instead of avoiding the difficult conversations, instead of trying to find the quickest way out of the hard situation. We can live with eager expectation. The phraseology there speaks of craning his neck, looking over, trying to see what's coming with expectation. Not so he can be prepared and tensed up and ready for a fight. A kid uh, the night before Christmas that can't go to sleep because he's so excited about what's going to be there for, waiting for him in the morning. He's confident that though he's in chains, the message of Christ won't be hindered. He's confident that though he's being ridiculed and afflicted by other Christian people, this won't take away from his salvation. He is confident. That he will not be disappointed, that he won't be ashamed, that he won't be let down. His salvation is certain. And so he lives with great hope. How many of us over the last, I don't know, what, it seems like, seems like a, a lifetime, but, but really the last two years. This is life, man, life, everything's harder. We feel distant and isolated from one another. People arguing about everything, everywhere we turn. How, how many of us have just wanted to throw in the towel and give up and want to be done? You've probably heard me say that. I know I've felt it. Every time we start to try to do something, it feels like something gets in our way and we lose momentum again. We've got to start all over when we first came back from lockdowns and, and, uh, and, and, and uh, social distance orders and all that stuff that, that was happening in the first part of the pandemic, I felt like I was planting a church all over again. I'm like, why? Why does it feel this way? I don't want to be doing this work at this stage in my ministry. Why? I just want to quit. Well, why is that? Because I found greater value in some metric than the fact that no matter what we do, Christ is proclaimed. Why are people arguing and, 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 and angry at one another over stuff like this? Why has it so invaded us that we have become marked more by hopelessness than hope? When Jesus becomes everything to us, like Paul we can live and die in hope. But whatever comes, we can recognize that God has allowed it for a reason. 
We're not outside of his will. He's, 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 not, he's not purposely caused a person to sin against us, maybe, but he certainly allowed it for a reason. Regardless of the circumstance and the crisis we find ourselves in, he is still at work. We won't be disappointed. Again, Alec Montier, the Christian need never fear the outcome of events. Life brings, as we say, its daily pressures. Many of them are unexpected. Often they seem uncalled for. From time to time they are traceable to the malignity of wicked people. That's true. Every ounce of that's they're coming and sometimes they're purposeful, malicious people bringing them against us. But God is overall. And there's no point in believing in a sovereign God if he can be tumbled off the throne by human or satanic agency. Do you know the God that you have been saved by is sovereign? If you know that, then why are we so quick to to move to hopelessness and despair in the face of crisis and conflict? Because we don't always really know it. But we have every reason to believe it. When Jesus becomes everything to us, we can live and die courageously. How many of us are marked by fear? Oh, we live in a cancer culture, right? If I say these words, I'm going to be rejected. If I do this thing, I'm going to be canceled. I'm going to lose job. I'm going to lose friendships. I'm going to be kicked out of something. Something to lose. In Christ, what do we really have to lose? One more quote from a... These these guys just had so much good to say in this passage. I felt like it's just worthwhile bringing all these quotes. They're out on our YouVersion event. You can find them there if they're helpful to you. A, A Christian may experience much hell on earth. Although in God's grace, it is always mingled with a taste of heaven. But beyond that is the bliss of heaven and unbroken fellowship with God. I'm going to stop right there. There's more to it. When Jesus becomes everything to us, when he becomes the very point of our life, there's no reason to fear any loss or death. J.M. Boyce, he goes on, he says, On the other hand, all that the unbeliever will know of heaven is the heaven he makes for himself on earth. After that, His future is condemnation and suffering. If you've never trusted in Christ, I hope you'll hear that warning. But if you're a Christian who's trusted in Christ, who's been regenerated, who's been converted, who's repented of sin and believed in Jesus for salvation, I would encourage you to quit living like the lost person who tends to believe they got to have it all right now. This is as good as it's ever going to be I gotta make I gotta make everything count. I gotta pursue and have it all right now. This is not heaven. This is not our home. Our Savior didn't save us to leave us here, but to prepare us, equip us, and make us ready to live with Him for eternity. When Jesus becomes everything to us, we can live and die courageously. Let's pray.